The following is a Kingfisher Media Production. Welcome to In the Blood. I'm AC Fisher, and with me is my co-host Jason Moore. This show celebrates the value of the shared experience. We believe that when we communicate from the heart, it offers validation to those who have previously felt alone, and it also gives permission for others to do the same. Together, we can start the healing process, and together we are strong. Together, we can stop being statistics for pain and sorrow. Today's guest is no stranger to me, but he is new to this project, Kellen Flukiger. Kellen is a man who's got a reputation that precedes him in ways that I have rarely seen before. He's the author of at least 15 books. He is a coach. I find him to be a philosopher, an all-around wonderful person, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show today. Kellen, welcome. Well, thank you, and thank you for the introduction. The first thing I want to do is honor both of you. Podcasts in general are a labor of love. They take a lot of work. You can't sell them, and they may or may not contribute a lot to somebody's business, but it's usually driven by someone's heart and their love for service and trying to add good to the world. And you guys are trying to do that. And so I want to honor that and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Very, very much appreciate that. So, Kellen, obviously, the reason you're on the show today is because you obviously have had some experience with relationship struggle or struggles at some point in your your past. Which of those did you want to start with today? (laughs) Which of what? Which relationship struggle? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I... I was a disaster. I grew up with um, everything being very conditional. You're only okay if, you know, you do certain things and you act a certain way. And everything was sort of, a, you know, based on conditionality. And I really didn't know how I learned to lie a lot to protect myself from, from violent um, discipline that today would be criminal, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I didn't really know how to have a relationship with another person who wasn't, you know, from this sort of warped and broken framework. And I believed with all my heart that I was the the cause of all this. And so even after I left home, that had internalized in me so deeply that I I carried that with me, what that did in, and I desperately wanted a relationship. So I remember, you know, like every kid in high school, wanting a relationship, wanting a girlfriend and all that sort of thing. When I finally got to college and began to, and later began to look for a relationship, I didn't really know how to be one, be a, be in a relationship. And so I failed pretty badly. Um, I didn't know how to create friendship first. I didn't grow up in high school with friends, for example. If you ask me who my friends were in high school, the answer is, gee, I don't know. Uh, there's lots of people in my graduating class that you know, they invite me to the reunions, but I don't know any of them very well and that sort of thing. So my relationships were bad. Uh, I was married and divorced three times over several decades and uh, attracted people that had their own sets of struggles, but I'm sure that and it takes two to tango. I understand that, but I, I'm sure I was not much of a relationship partner in those in those relationships. So, 
I can talk about anything, any part of that that would that would be useful. Where should we start? I, I think all of it's useful, but I, I think a good place to start would be at the heart of the matter, which would be that your idea of of normal, your concept of what constitutes a loving environment, like you said, it it, it was kind of warped. Can you describe maybe like what your like how you would have defined love, what your expectations of love maybe would have been at this time. I'm not sure I even know. So love was a feeling of desire that you had towards someone else. I think I probably related it principally to physical attraction, like you might at that age, but I knew somehow in my mind that there's supposed to be more, supposed to be partnership and unity. And I had uh, um, an idea that, you know, I was supposed to provide something and I wasn't sure what the other part of a relationship was an intimate relationship or marriage or whatever was supposed to provide. I really didn't know. Um, And so I, besides physical things, uh, I, I, I would have died to have someone that was a friend. I'd never had a friend that I talked to that I confided in. And I was sort of hoping, I think, that my my uh, marriage or a woman would provide that sort of completion. But I certainly didn't know how to be a friend either. So I, I was looking for something that I didn't know how to be start with. So my definition of love would have been shallow. It would have consisted around physical things. And also we're supposed to help each other and, you know, be there for each other. And I would have said all the kinds of things that you would have expected someone to say that would just say whatever they heard or knew, but I don't think I had any emotional context. I didn't feel safe at home. I didn't feel like I had anywhere to talk to. I can't, my, uh, my mom insisted that we, for several years, not all the time, but for many years, that we keep some kind of a journal uh, because she thought it was a good idea for family history and all that sort of thing. But I never wrote anything in there that mattered. I lied all the time because I knew that it wasn't private and it would be read all the time. So I wrote garbage, Mm. you know, whatever was supposed to be there. And I didn't really have anywhere to be open and to tell the truth about anything. Well, Jason, like I, I I think, listening to what Kellen's saying this is sort of like an interesting take because there are elements of what I can identify with, you know, based on the kind of upbringing I had, but based on what you've described about your upbringing, I feel like, you know, you could probably reflect back a lot of this too. Couldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the feeling of nobody really being there for you, the depth that the sorrow that that creates inside of you. Oh, absolutely. It's very hard when I'm, curious about Kellen was what in your opinion was the, was there a shining moment that all of a sudden like a light went on and you realized, well, holy, this is what friendship is, or this is how I get to friendship, or this is how I get to real love and take it away from that, that physical aspect that you explained earlier. Yeah. But that didn't happen until I had failed three times and I was 52. Holy. Uh, I started experimenting with drugs to get out of the reality I was in, not because of peer pressure, even though I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area in the post-hippie, end of the hippie sort of free experimentation years. Um, 
I, I was I went up and down in depression, I, which I never talked to anyone about. I blamed myself for everything that was wrong. My idea of responsibility was that everything around me was my fault, my responsibility. And I continued to have a relationship with my mom and dad and believed. And this is the sad part. I believed that everything that was wrong in my life was my fault and that I need I, if I could just suck it up and be a better person, I would be OK. And didn't feel like I knew what I could do. Like I wanted to be a musician and open a recording studio and do music. And that was bad because musicians are evil people and they are are drunk and use drugs and aren't faithful to their spouses. Well, I became my mother's worst nightmare, you know, in that whole context. And so I closed the studio I had opened for about 10 years, 12 years from 82 to 95. I closed it in 1990 three, two or three. So I had it about 10 or 11 years and, you know, pursued a, a career with a vengeance. And like I said, you would think that you get away from your home and you can redefine your life. I, I wasn't able to do that. I had no one to talk to. I, I could have, I could have reached out and gone to some counselors and said, this just doesn't work. Help me here. But I didn't do that. And I didn't do it because part of the sort of cloistered upbringing was you don't talk to anybody. And the only job of these professional counselors are they're godless pigs and their only purpose is to take you away from truth and everything else. And it's all private and you suck anyway, mm -hmm. kind of feeling. And so I never did. It literally took a, I went up and down that depression roller coaster. I created awesome career success, made all kinds of money, had high ranking positions, like a movie, you know, with two faces, one side, it's like, wow, top of the world. Look at that guy, three piece Armani downtown. Let's do battle making good money, ridiculous money. And then behind the scenes, I was a wreck. I was in and out of rehab. I was a high functioning addict. I trashed three relationships, self-sabotage, you know, came in there uh, several times, and then I would go start over again and create awesome success. And I think the real addiction wasn't to any drug, even though that played a high role in a lot of stuff. But the addiction was to self-loathing. I needed to hate myself because I, I believed the idea that I wasn't okay. I never would be. I suck. I'm flawed and I won't be. And so when this good stuff happens, like I can't have this kind of thing. That's well, all retrospective. You mentioned um, your your mother portraying certain types of people as like godless pigs. Obviously, there is some sort of uh, warped religious background in, in the mix there, and and that's something I can very very much identify with. I was raised in a fundamentalist Pentecostal household. There were devils literally in doorknobs. You know, everything was evil. But I, I think one of the hardest things for for me to shake off was you know like you're describing this this self-loathing this just negative uh view of self but i think the the most difficult challenge was the fact that we were so trained to develop um prayer skills that we didn't develop any actual coping skills can you identify with that i completely and it, there was nothing really wrong with the religion or the belief in God or anything. It was the application. So there was a, a, a particular set of things. This was right. And the this was right was enforced with violence. 
And I, I realized after I started recovery from this whole mess, both of, of sobriety and of depression, that I never really learned the difference between principle and preference. So, for example, my, my, um, my mom thought jazz was evil and bad music. And I didn't realize later that that had nothing to do with the teachings of the church that she belonged to or that I was raised in. That was her preference. She had this opinion about jazz and jazz musicians and the whole environment, and that was evil. But that that's nowhere to be found in the dogma doctrine or anything else. And I didn't even realize until I finally got a hold of my life and took control of the levers that I didn't know the difference in all those years between preference and principle, even the principles that were at the fundament of this, they were enforced with the same vigor. I couldn't own records. You know, I couldn't do this and do that. Even people in my same church, like our house was never the place to go. I couldn't go do the youth activities because you might get too close to girls and bad things might happen. And the leaders that were running those weren't doing it right. You know, all of that sort of thing. And so it was like fanatic beyond fanatic. It wasn't the church. It was the application and the idea that there's a certain way to do this and that's it. Well, like this to me all, all sounds very, very normal. Jason, you didn't grow up around church. Like, what does this sound like to you? Well, I can definitely relate to the violence, but on a different level, being a person from the streets for 14 years, my lifestyle was violence. It was stay in line. There was no doctrine to be shoved down my throat. There was no morality to be shoved down my throat either. So I come from a totally opposite school of thought or, or of raising, I guess, for lack of a better term. But it, it it sounds like you probably have a lot. Like, can you identify with what Kellen's saying? I mean, even though you're you weren't coming from a a faith context, it sounds like you, you had a lot of the same struggles. Oh, addiction was a big one. <laughs> I was <laughs> cokehead for many, many, many years, and you know the where you guys were indoctrinated and, and felt like you weren't given coping skills. The only thing I had to deal with was coping skills. I never dealt with anything. I coped with it, put it in my virtual backpack and moved on my way as my backpack over the years was getting bigger and bigger and bigger to a point where I ended up having to be, keep myself single for eight years and work on me while I was raising my children. Thank you for listening to In the Blood. Please remember to like, follow, and share. Well, I totally understand. One of the things that I've I've uh, just finished, I just finished a month and a half ago, a book that'll be out in March, my 16th or something. And I have six more I'm working on. I wasn't even an author until I changed my life in 2007 and had the gigantic awakening. But since then, I've written all these books. Anyway, the one I just finished was titled Forgiveness, A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power. Because what I realized is that whether it's the side of people did a bunch of bad stuff to you and they deserve to be punished and they're not and there's never been any justice and no amount of justice could ever make up for the rotten things that were done to me. Or the other side, which is, I, I had that because of the abuse, but the other side, I had even more, which was, 
How could I ever be okay because of the pain, the lies, the deception, the all the bad stuff I inflicted on all these other people? I can never forgive myself. I, I deserve to die every day a horrible and monstrous death. And I realized that whichever side of the coin you look at, or both sides, there is no such thing as an ability to administer justice in a way that satisfies someone who's been emotionally pain. That's why people Absolutely. say things like, you know, they should be tarred and feathered and this and that and the other, and it still wouldn't. Okay. That's how they feel truly. And I have felt like that on the other side, no matter what I do, I could never make up for a fill in the blank. And so what you, the, what made me think about this is that backpack from our earliest moments in the planet, we start getting hurt. We fall off the bed and we get hurt. This happens and that happens. And later, you know, we figure out somebody's responsible and we get mad or we do something and then we feel bad. And we're never taught anywhere how to let that go in a positive and joyful way and just to offer less or no resistance to the things that happen in life and choose to live with love and kindness and compassion just because you can, and therefore empty that backpack that is perpetually full of all those rocks from either side of that coin that, that are there until you choose to let it go. Absolutely. One of the things that you'd sent us uh, before we chatted today was a, a short video sharing your views on forgiveness. You had referred to forgiveness as a gift. Can you tell us a little bit about what that gift is? So <clears throat> the gift is a gift you give yourself. There are, that's the principal thing. There are peripheral gifts that are part of that. But let's say, let's go back to the things that were done to me or to Jason or to anyone who has terrible things done to them. Maybe they have been abused. Maybe they have been beaten. Maybe they have been sexually abused. F forgiveness is not excusing behavior. It is not pretending it didn't happen. It is not ignoring the reality that you have to cope with whatever injuries, psychological or physical, were inflicted by that. It is a choice to emotionally, uh, energetically, if you want to use a woo-woo word, but to emotionally simply let love replace anger or the desire for justice, revenge, retribution, a, a return of the pain that was inflicted on me to somebody else. That, that's one side. And as long as I hold on to that um, bitterness or desire for pain for them, I am limited. And it doesn't matter if they apologize or not. I can forgive someone whether they apologize or not. It doesn't mean I've excused their behavior. It doesn't mean there isn't some ultimate justice because I think there is. But regardless of all that, as long as I hold on to that anger, I've got a backpack full of anger. Rocks, revenge, lust, negativity, pain. I've got that. And it limits my ability to be inspired, to live a guided life, to love, to be a light in the world. I use the phrase beacon of light, vessel of love, and a conduit of power. And all that's full of dirt, garbage, anger, and frustration. So those things can't come through. 
Now, if you go on the other side, and I think of all the stuff I did when I wasn't there for my kids, I have 10 kids. Uh, I was there not much. or for, There were times during that 40, 35 years from 17 to 52 when I was present, but there were a lot of periods that I wasn't. And addiction was rampant and, you know, trying to prove something, fanatic addiction to proving something was part of it. So I wasn't there and I certainly didn't administer the kind of physical punishment that I got, but I'm sure I wasn't much of a partner in the relationships or parents. So then I felt enormous guilt for that. And as my kids have had problems and everything, they have joyfully blamed me. And I used to play the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry forever. How many times do I have to crawl over broken glass and bleed before it's okay? And I can, I, I had my own peace contingent on their acceptance of my reformation. And as long as we do that, we're carrying the same pile of rocks, but just a different color. And it likewise limits my ability to be a beacon of light, a vessel of love, and a conduit of power. So the gift in forgiveness is it unleashes the gifts that you, each one of you, or I can give to the world, the love that I can bring, the divine intuition that I can channel, the help, the guidance, the lifting, the blessing that has come from our bitter experience. Every rotten thing that happened to me or any of you serves to temper us and to teach us a specialized empathy that we could have received in no other way. So while I've been through holy hell, I wouldn't trade it. I love where I am. I love who I am. And even though of my 10 kids, some don't talk to me yet, I am full of love, hope, and I have time and heaven, the universe on my side. So I remain eternally optimistic and hopeful where I used to drink myself into oblivion because I had been such a pig. Now, how helpful was that? That's powerful, holy mackerel. So that's why it's a gift. And if on the way, because I make amends, you know, all the 12 step or other programs talk about making amends, making restitution and okay, that's part of it. If I do that, but my forgiveness of self doesn't depend on them accepting that it doesn't depend. Everybody's on their own journey. And if I let my ability to serve you and your audience depend on whether or not someone that I have hurt their acceptance of my offer, then I've given up control of my life. I've given it to somebody or somebody's else. And in that way, we deny ourselves the ability to serve and to love and to add good to the world. So that's why it's a gift to me. It's a gift to someone else that can see that and then makes a choice to say, wow, they have changed. They have become happy. I want some of that. So it can be a gift to them. And those are all peripheral gifts because they depend on the, the observation, the willingness, and the choice of that person, wherever they are in their path, to do the same thing that you or I have been doing as we clean up, fess up, clean up, recommit, and choose intentionally who we want to be, and then be that all in every day. Hmm. Wow, that's so fantastic. 
You know, at, at the top of the show, I had mentioned the value of the shared experience and I'm personally already appreciating the value of the shared experience because as you're talking about forgiveness, what's resonating with me is that, you know, as Jason can attest to, this is something that we have argued and debated a lot over the years is he doesn't understand why I forgive others so easily. I don't understand why he struggles with it so much. Forgiving others has always been very, very easy for me because, you know, I'm, I, I don't see the value in holding them accountable like you described. Up until that point, I'm 100% with you. But where you're bringing something new to the table for me is when you're saying that forgiveness of self cannot be contingent on somebody else's acceptance of the apology, acceptance of the amends. That one statement alone just took half the rocks out of my backpack. So I want to thank you for that. I want you to think about that for a minute. If I've hurt some of my kids when I was a drug addict and I would, I made so much money, my $3,000 a week Coke addiction. Okay. I was spending three grand a week. That was lunch money. I had a big house and all the stuff and six cars and motorcycles and all kinds of crazy crap and season tickets to this, that, and the other, but I wasn't taking care of the kids. I had four teenagers living with me and I was a single dad. Hmm. Okay. They, have been in and out of communication with me. Some of them are doing okay. Some of them are still struggling. They, some of them want to blame me and say, you ruined my life, but they're all adults, like way adults in their late twenties and early thirties. And I've even got kids that are 40, uh, 41. And the youngest is mid twenties. I don't know where they are in their life, their life journey their life choices about choosing to have power for themselves. They have the same right I had all during the time I was stuck in depression. I could have reached out. I could have taken control of the levers of my life and sought help. I didn't. Maybe I didn't see it. Maybe I was dumb. Maybe I was just broken. Maybe I was still stuck in that self-loathing. But me saying after the unbelievable divine experiences I've had that have offered me the opportunity to change. And I said, yes, and I have offered everything that I can. Now, if I say to myself, I can't be okay, I can't fully love and serve and be vulnerable and open and help everybody as much as I can, because XYZ kid is still mad at me and still blames me. And if somebody found that out, they'd think I'm a faker or anything else. That's nonsense. That is the height of nonsense. And all it does, it's not arrogance or anything. It deprives me of your light, AC. Light and love and service that you can bring, I don't get. Because the room in your heart for that is full of that regret and sadness that ABC hasn't XYZ yet. Can I push back on that a little bit? By all means. And it, it's possible that I'm just pushing back on myself. So I hope you don't take this personally. I don't take it anyway. Go for it. <laughs> the question is, after everything you've done to others, after everything I've done to others, why do we deserve to feel okay about the experience? 
That's a good question. And I'm sure many people go to the place of saying, because I've done this, I never get to X, Y, Z. I never, I'm so awful that I never get to experience peace, harmony, love, forgiveness, joy, and everything else. So here's the way that I think about it. I, because I had a near-death experience and because I had a divine intervention that got me sober in one day from 3K a week to zero in a single day, I, I have had experiences that let me know certain things. And some of the things I know is that we're all intentional divine creations. We were all given divine gifts and talents. We have a mission and purpose, and we all feel it sometimes, that yearning and pull that says, do this, do that. And we feel those intuitions. I also know that help is available from all around us and from divine sources if we seek it, although it's never crammed down our throats. So if that's true, and it is, then the idea, we're all born in different circumstances. Some people have it really hard. They're born in bad places, bad things happen to them. Others are born with the beginning of life really easy and things are all taken care of. And yet all of us have the opportunity to make something or nothing out of the circumstances that we're in. And so the idea that you can't be happy because you sucked in the past at whatever it is, is like saying the person who hurt you can never be okay because they hurt you. So if you can never be okay because you sucked, then anyone who hurt anyone else badly can never be okay because they sucked. Are you enjoying In the Blood? Support the show by clicking the subscribe button and follow us on social media. That structure doesn't make sense to me on its face, let alone the divine experiences that I've had. The idea that most of us never can be okay and that the whole thing is just a big experiment in suckness doesn't make sense to me. Our bodies are built when we serve each other in love. We it releases oxytocin and it feels good. And the hormones that we have are released when we work in community and when we hug even and when we just just that whole feeling of working together and doing good. We're built that way. And that's by intentional design. And so the idea that the whole thing is built to mostly suck just doesn't make sense to me. Let, forget the divine experiences that I've had. On its face, that doesn't make sense. Okay, Jason, a little bit earlier, you had drawn a distinction between coping and dealing. I'd like you to explain a little bit about that distinction and then maybe have Kellen feedback on you know what you have to say on that. Um, well, coping was just having situations and learning to live through them, put them behind you and just move forward. Never deal with anything. Dealing with it meant you had a safe place to go, meant you had a safe place in your head to go. 
That's what I was taught. So you never had time to slow down because you never knew where your next meal was. You never knew where your next fight was. You never know where your next line was from. You never had time to stop and deal and complete because you were always coping so you could just move forward and stay alive for tomorrow. So are you waiting for me to say something about that or is he going to say something else? Oh, go ahead. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm going to say that's absolutely horrific. The idea that you're living literally from moment to moment, not knowing where your next meal, your next safety, or whether you're going to die this day or that day, that, that is not a pleasant or fun or desirable place to live. And it goes to demonstrate the reality of the kind of cruelty that we have created for ourselves and for each other in the world. That's a reality, and there's nothing that anyone can do that says that's just or fair or good. But to me, from my point of view, <clears throat> that to me underscores the argument I made a minute ago that said it doesn't make any sense. If this five minutes or 100 years is all there is to the existence, if we came from nowhere and we go nowhere, then like existentialist philosophy would dictate everything is absurd. There's nothing that matters. And the whole thing is ridiculous because there can be no justice, no goodness and all the rest of it. But my own experience, including all the bad stuff, screams something different. And that and this is the reason for forgiveness. I don't have the ability, neither do you, for all those people that did whatever they did to you. We, we don't have the ability to, or the wisdom, quite frankly, to extract justice or to require any justice. I, we actually have no idea what true, honest justice would be, given any mitigation that might or might not belong in a circumstance and subtracting our painful emotional multiplier that would be added, you know, to whatever, whatever we, we experience. And on the other hand, I have no idea <clears throat> how bad I have hurt somebody. I have no idea that the lies and the things that I did, I have no idea. I know it was awful and bad and all kinds of stuff, but the actual experience of their pain. So we aren't equipped, nor are, and then gratefully, we're not asked to do that. And that's why forgiveness is such a gift. It's a blessing. I can let that go. I can let that go because there's somebody somewhere else that's going to balance that ledger. Mm -hmm. And all I feel for that is just gratitude. I don't have to keep score. I don't have to do that. And I'm so grateful I don't. Because well, then I can do what I can. You can't. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I just get to do the good I can do. I can't what? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> no, I mean, you, you can't uncrack the egg, right? I think I, that, that's what I'm, I'm hearing you say. You can choose what to do with it. You can cook it. You can wipe it up. You can cry that it's cracked, right? But I, I, I kind of like this ap approach of not poisoning yourself. You know, in your, in your little blurb about forgiveness, you talked about, you know, holding on to that being like putting poison in your morning coffee or orange juice. That's really the long and short of it, though, isn't it? You're, you're not looking to hang on to that internal toxicity. On the contrary, I'm delightfully releasing it. 
I'm delightfully, excuse me, just a second. I'm delightfully letting it go. And I'm filling my morning coffee or orange juice with love and sugar and light and love because I can. And it is in no way pretending that all those evil things that happen in the world don't happen. But the best that I can do is to give the best love, support, kindness, and lift that I can do. It doesn't do any good to sit around and rage at people that hurt me, to rage at myself because I hurt people, or rage at the world because there's all kinds of crap going on. The only good I can do is lift, bless where I can, serve where I can, and encourage people to do that for each other. The raging, that that is the poison that circulates in our society today more than any time in my lifetime since I've been born. I'm 66, and the level of discomfort, of rage, of injustice, and the, the way people feel. You see it when people in supermarkets scream at clerks and stuff because people feel like they have no control. When they have control for a second in a situation, you get road rage and people behaving ridiculously in situations because they they have not learned to simply be in love with their life, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, social media, painting a picture of you should have this and, you know, lifestyles of the rich and stupid. And I can say that <laughs> because I used to do that. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, how does any of that lifting and blessing the world, let it go and live in joy. And you can allow yourself not to live in ignorance, but you can live in full awareness and understanding of everything that's going on and make a choice to do everything you can about it in a state of happiness and compassion instead of a state of defensiveness and frustration. Fair enough. I see quick question for you though. What is your take on coping and dealing? What, because you have a similar background to Kellen, what was your ability to cope and deal or how did you work with that? Well, I mean, I'd always cope through just falling on my knees and praying. I was always told, let go and let God. Right. And I, even after I had left the faith, I found myself very much in, in, in the day-to-day -day looking for somebody else to basically take over, you know, like I said quite often, you know, like I, I need a grown up, and that's kind of how I, I, I felt. So like in my early days, I had to start learning how to just deal with basic stuff, you know, like I'm feeling frustrated today. Coping to me was just figuring out how not to lose my temper. Dealing was addressing the source of the frustration, taking steps to change the situation taking steps to make sure that, you know, the, uh, th there wasn't room for that frustration. There was just room to celebrate a solved problem and to celebrate the confidence that comes along with knowing that I can handle the things that come my way. I don't have to turn it into a negative emotional transaction. So I love the word surrender. And the reason I love the word surrender is not, and again, like forgiveness doesn't mean excusing bad deeds or ignoring the consequences. Surrender isn't abdication. Surrender isn't pretending you don't have response hyphen ability. Surrender is understanding truly to the core of your soul that I don't control the weather. Hmm. 
and use that in the broadest sense. I don't control what anybody else thinks or does or acts like or anything else. And I don't even have to like it. In fact, I can wonder what on earth they were thinking. And I can think, you know, that was really bad or stupid or whatever. But I also have the freedom to not let it affect my heart. It's like Viktor Frankl wrote in about his concentration camp in World War II. He said there were some people in there <clears throat> who were beaten down, bedraggled, negative, who, woe is me, hurting, and the situation completely warranted that. They were starving to death and being killed. Even in that situation, <clears throat> there were those who chose to get up, go around, lift spirits, lift hands, sit with people, and show love. What is the difference? The difference is a choice. This is freedom. This is what it means to truly be free, because you can't take away my right to be happy, my right to live in love, and my right to surrender, not abdicate, but to offer zero resistance to the course of life while taking fierce ownership of everything I think, say, and do about it. Hmm. Well, Kellen, as we come to the, the 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 end of our time here together today, I just wanted to make sure. Um, f- first of all, like, you understand how truly helpful your your words, your insights, and your shared experience have been. Um, J- Jason, actually, before I close things out, did you have any more questions that you wanted to to ask in closing? Actually, he's so intuitive; everything was answered that I had. <laughs> That's. <laughs> more or less where I'm feeling. I only have one question and I hope you don't feel like this is a cheap shot or a below the belt kind of thing, but you'd mentioned that some of your, your, your kids don't currently communicate with you. If any of them were to be listening, is there something that you would like them to hear from you? I don't think it's a cheap shot at all. I told you to start with, there's nothing off the table. I've got kids who talk with me and then a year later they don't and they blame me for something. And when, when you need, when I needed a scapegoat or when any of us need a scapegoat, we point, we find one, we get angry and we blame them for stuff until we stop living that way. So I used to live feeling like the depression I experienced was caused by X, Y, Z and I don't know any of that anymore. What I know is XYZ happened to me and I lived consequently after that for decades, believing I was not okay and sabotaging my life. Is there a complete causal relationship? I don't know. There could be. But at any moment I could, I did eventually, but I could have taken some responsibility and gone and find some other resources, picked a different path. So if if any of my kids ever hear this and you're not talking to me, I love you. I am open. I apologize and have a thousand times for the things I did that were wrong. I'm not excusing any of them by any stretch. And undoubtedly, they were painful, hurtful, and not what I would have done if I had had my wits about me. And so what I I meant what I said, I know. I know like the sun shines in Phoenix and I'm looking at your two beautiful faces. There will come a day when their hearts will reach to want to change the way, the weight of the rocks that they carry. And the only way to drop those rocks is with forgiveness. That's it. 
No one can take the rocks out. No amount of retribution or justice makes it okay. You see movies all the time where somebody chases somebody down for a year, 10 or 20, and they finally get him and they beat the crap out of him or kill him or whatever. And then the next line is, I thought I would feel better and it doesn't change anything. Hmm. Well, how, how many times have you seen or read that in movie? Well, it's the truth. And the truth, it's the reason it's the truth is because it's got nothing to do with it. You can release that pain anytime you want on either side of that coin. And often the hardest one is to forgive yourself because you hate yourself so badly for having been so wrong mm -hmm. and so evil and so cruel and, and lied so much. And, you know, I coping, I thought of my, I learned to be a pathological liar. I happened to have a good memory. I never got caught. I never got sent to jail. I went to airports and everything else with all kinds of stuff that should have got me arrested a million times. Never got caught, never this, never that. And I was a disaster. And that was nothing to be good or proud of. And I'm certainly not, but I'm not going to pretend any of it away. But I'm certainly also not going to let it prevent me today from being a beacon of light, a vessel of love, and a conduit of power with my hand and my heart out to lift anybody that's trying to stand up. That's what I'd say to the kids. Very cool. Powerful stuff. Any closing thoughts, guys? Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you, looking at your faces, the sincerity and the wish and good for hope that you're doing and being in the world. And I mean that with all my heart. Mm -hmm. Very much. I would like to emulate that. Thank you very much to both of you for being in my life and sharing this time with me. <clears throat> I really appreciate both of you. Thank you. Hey, Kellen, if people want to get in touch with you or find out what you're working on, what's the best way to go about that? You know, that's the fun thing about having a weird name. There are two Kellen Flukigers out of 8 billion people. Uh, the other one is my son. The age difference is obvious. If you want to find me on Google, there's thousands of hits because of my executive career and because of my YouTube channel, website, and books. If you Amazon me, there's books and music. There's all kinds of stuff. I'm on, so, not all, but many of the social media. I've got a YouTube channel. I've got an episode a podcast i just recorded episode 593 the other day so you, i'm really easy to find anybody that wants to talk to me can you're invited and the only reason you won't be able to find me is because you spelled my name wrong actually can Steve. i ask one question yeah this came up kellen if you could recommend one of your books that closely emulate something along lines to this episode what would what would you put out there <clears throat> well, uh, that's a hard question because it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for business advice about how to make your life better in your business, then that would be the results equation. If you want to write a book, that would be the story arc. If you're looking about uh, how to walk, understand and make sense out of your life, it would be tightrope of depression and the sequel down from the gallows. If you're looking to understand the spiritual things that have happened to me, part of it's in tightrope. It would be meeting God at the door, conversations and choices and commitments of a near-death experience. So it depends on what you're looking for. And, and the, the, if, you're, if you're really looking at the, the book that's not out yet, Forgiveness, A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power, will be out in a couple of months. Okay, for those of you who are listening on the audio podcast, we'll include a link to Kellen's website in the show notes for those of you who are watching on YouTube, 
you can look no farther than the bottom of your screen and you can find a link to kellenflukiger.com. Kellen, again, thank you so much for being a part of the conversation today and would really very, very much like to chat with you again sometime in the future. Happy to do it. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And please, I, like I said, my name's weird. You can find me and then you can stay as in touch as you'd like. Fantastic. Fantastic.